This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another week of O Ship. I happen to have yet another one of my very interesting friends on this week, a gentleman called Otto Othman. Otto has a really, really compelling story. I met him years ago when we worked at Sapient, where he was a senior interactive art director in one of the largest digital agencies in the world. And I would have never guessed when I met him back then that he was going to turn out to be this just incredible entrepreneur. While he was at Sapient, he started a restaurant chain called Pincho Factory, now known as Pincho. And for any of you who may uh, be watching that lived in South Florida and visited South Florida, you've probably seen uh, one of the Pincho restaurants around. And he was literally birthing this while doing this full-time job in an interactive agency. And we're going to get a lot into that story today. Since then, he also founded and sold another business called Night Pro that built kind of software management for handling guests at, at nightclubs. But in his journey at Pincho, he started off as the co-founder and CMO, and then recently ended up becoming the CEO about three months before COVID happened. So if you haven't got a classic O-Ship story, I don't think it gets much better than this. It's an incredible journey of how he's conquered probably some reservations and uncertainties he's had about himself to leap into some incredible uh, situations and frankly execute on them with some incredible success. And with that, we've got another week of O-Ship that I title, From Burgers to Big Business, Conquering Your Fear as a Leader. Otto, welcome to the show. It's uh, so good to see you here. Uh, likewise, brother. Thanks for having me, man. Exciting. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Again, I hope I hope my intro did you justice. You're you're such a, such a cool background. You've been on such a good journey. I, I frankly didn't want to steal your thunder by talking too much about what you've done. And and uh, as I think we're going to get into that deeply uh, today, as I frequently say on the show, I know you pretty damn well, but. I'd love for our audience to get to know you better. Could you could you give a, a quick brief introduction on some of your background and, and what you're focused on today? Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. First of all, super excited, huge fan of Pleasure. the show and, and, and of you, of course. Uh, so look, I mean, my background, I won't bore you guys with, with, with all the details, but basically I was born and raised in Brazil and moved to the US uh, in 2001. I'm a huge nerd. I was very big into computers. I'm the kid who got kicked out of school for nine days for hacking into the library system, like in, <laughs> in Chicago. So I'll give you just that, that sort of nugget there. But I was very big into computers, very big into design, you know, programming, they got into design. So naturally, you know, I started working, you know, building websites, you know, HTML. And then I used to teach C++ at some point when I was a kid. You know, it was like that, that has been my life. And then I ended up at uh, Sapient. And uh, I've worked there for, for many years. I started uh, managing the interactive team, overseeing everything that had to do with Flash. So thank you, Steve Jobs, for killing the entire life, <laughs> life of mine. <laughs> That's all behind me and useless today. And then moved on into, into design and, and sort of fell in love with concepting, creating ideas for the brands that we used to work with as Sapient. And right in the middle of that, you know, I've always had this entrepreneurial 
blood because I've always worked with my dad since I was a kid. You know, we're, we're immigrants, so we don't shy away from building business from scratch is who we are as people, as part of our blood. So, you know, while I was saving, I always wanted to uh, open up all of these ideas, all of these, you know, startups. And obviously it was always tech related. I always was a huge fan of TechCrunch and uh, I was always coming up with some idea. But in the mix there, you know, uh, I opened uh, Pincho and I can talk a little bit more about Pincho in a little bit. And that's where we are. I love that you said you, you loved watching, uh, reading TechCrunch. I think any, you know, a lot of uh, entrepreneurial types, especially if they love tech, you know, we're all obsessively, including me, reading that. And I think, you know, maybe this is why all of us wanted to go down this startup path. But I think there's a sense you can get if you read TechCrunch that being a, a, an entrepreneur is all like popping bottles and, and right. VCs just like, here's a briefcase of cash. You're like, just go. It's going to be great. No problem. Like, oh, super easy. You're going to be worth like $100 million in a week. Don't <laughs> worry. And that is not the reality of it. And I think, you know, you, you've gone through that probably journey better than anyone. Uh, yeah, so I like to focus, even though I think, you know, Night Pro is a, is a really cool story. I do want to focus on the Pincher journey because I just think it, it's it's got so many interesting kind of stages to it. Right. So let's start at the beginning. You know, first off, you're not in the restaurant business, tech nerd, computer guy. Like I love digital and marketing and design and websites. How does one even get to the point that you end up starting a restaurant? Tequila. Look, when I first moved to Miami, because we were from Brazil, we have this Middle Eastern background, you know, my mom's recipe for the kebabs were like a huge hit, like amongst our friends and family. Always my friends said like, oh my God, that's, that's amazing. Is it okay if we go to Publix and buy two pounds of steak and have your mom cut them up and season them and so on and so forth? So I, you know, always stayed in my head. So I said, you know, one day I'm going to sell this. Thing. And then, you know, it just happened that along the way prior to Sapient, I used to work at a design agency based out of uh, Plantation, not so far from, from where you guys were back in the day. And we're all focused in hospitality. I'm one of the guys who did the website for Tao, right? And we worked on all these big restaurants and all of these brands. And then it just became part of like a passion of mine. So I've always wanted to open a restaurant. So even though I was obsessed with technology, like hospitality, and I'm Middle Eastern, as you can tell, hospitality is part of our blood. So it's something that I've always wanted to do. So, you know, the opportunity presented itself in the 4th of July barbecue after a couple of shots of tequila <laughs> with my co-founder, Nadal. And I told him, look, you know, I've always wanted to do this brand, whereas a Latin street food brand based on my mom's recipes and then Nidal, uh, he was very good at cooking. He had a really good uh, burger recipe as well. And so, look, let's get together. I'll do all the marketing and branding, which is my nature and who I am. And then you run the show, you know. And obviously, I was—I had my life as Sapien. It was never really meant to be. You didn't know it was going to be big. You thought, hey, maybe we'll have one burger joint kind of thing. I don't think you were thinking about scaling it maybe at that at that point. Not at all, right? We just wanted to open one little shop and have fun. And so he can have, you know, something to do and a good life and I was going to be a sapien or you know move on to, to other tech roles and man it just took off step one of conquering your fears as a leader we've established is tequila but once the tequila <laughs> wears off and you have to actually kind of you know find a location and 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 really start you're committing money I mean you're, you're putting you're scrounging up whatever money you can put together to put these you know, businesses together what kind of doubts 
did you have about you know yourself or the business or what could go wrong at that stage? Because I know those probably changed at every stage, you know, as, as you go through this journey, which we are going to come back to. Well, you know, everybody told us we were nuts. Everybody, like my parents, including you're you know, still nuts, by the way, still- <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. You know, I, I went at first. You know, I was I was 25 years old at the time. You know, 25, 26. Uh, and then I told my parents, and like, you're crazy. It's like, we came to this country so you can go to college and so you can be where you are right now, right? And so you can work in the corporate world, become a VP of sorts, maybe, you know. Uh, yeah. And you're and you're trying to make burgers. What are you doing? Your own agency, yeah. you know, what, what are you going to do and open a burger joint? And it's just something that I really wanted to do. And, and I had just wanted to own a restaurant. I just want to set the tone here. How many, how many restaurants are you up to now? We're at 10 units now. And how many do you think you'll have in three years? Our pipeline right now is probably, hopefully, cross my fingers to get to 30, 35. Okay, so I just want to set context for, for anyone who's watching now, what we're talking or listening right now, like, you know, where you're at in this evolution. Please continue. Yeah. So, you know, we didn't have money, uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, at the time, uh, we had $77,000 combined between all of my life savings, <laughs> his money, and we dragged his little brother in. Because one, we loved them, and two, we needed his savings account as well. <laughs> really, you're a good dude. How much money do you got to get? Yeah, exactly. You know how much money you have? It's like 15k. Okay, you're a you're in. <laughs> So that's basically how it started, and you know everybody told us how hard it's going to be, and we couldn't afford to open it where we lived by because we needed to find like a second generation restaurant that was closing down in order for us to even make seventy seven thousand dollars work. Because you know, typically it will cost you half a million bucks to open up a restaurant. It's not something that that's cheap. So you know, it's again, ignorance is bliss, man. And this is what I tell everyone. You know, we we were just hard headed, and we're like, no, we're gonna do it. We believe in ourselves. We're just gonna go and get it done. And then, well, you've never been in the business. Maybe you, you know, they say that the restauranteur business is one of the hardest possible industries to be. In. So you didn't really even understand how hard this was going to be maybe at that stage. And, and they say it for a reason, because it is a very tough business. You, know, you have to really love hospitality in order to open up a restaurant. If you don't like, and this is why I say all the time, if you don't like hosting family and friends at your house every day, don't open a restaurant. <laughs> every day. I'm not talking about every, summer, day. every day, because that's what a restaurant is. You're hosting people every day. You got to go above and beyond. It's, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's it's But it's a very fulfilling career to be quite honest because you get the hospitality bug and then you walk into your restaurants and so many people love our brand and it's like the best feeling in the world like you know i go to i go to the airport and i'm checking the tsa you know uh, and then they're like oh they're like oh what do you do because obviously i'm, I'm, I'm middle eastern and then i'm like oh the restaurants <laughs> they're like pincho factory like oh pincho factory and they're like oh it, it's just uh you know it's an incredible feeling when people recognize the brand and tell you that they love it so, you know, I mean, but I digress. Going back to how we started, we just went for it, man. You know, we went for it, 77,000, no experience whatsoever. We just had a hunch that we were going to be good at it. And it turned out to be a good, uh, a good hunch. When you think about, I guess, at that stage, biggest thing is you were worried about going wrong, just getting people into the restaurant, getting people to even care. Would you say that was maybe the biggest, the biggest fear? You know, I think getting people to even come to you especially if you have a challenged real estate location was our biggest fear because we knew we couldn't afford to be in an amazing center with public mm-hmm. as an anchor or or you know whole foods where there's a constant traffic we settled for this little hole in the wall location in beautiful westchester 
you know, which is, is an amazing town, but the real estate that we have is not the best and it's not that visible, you know, because mm. Bird Road is a very busy street, but there's so many businesses, you you literally, you're invisible. You get lost in there, got lost in the mix. I, I think that was our biggest fear because we knew we had great food, right? It was already validated by all of our family and friends, right? And and we did tastings before. We literally, we did a ton of tastings before we, we launched our menu. So we knew we were going to go in with a really good product. It was just a, a fear of, A, knowing how to run a restaurant, which we never did. And to be quite honest, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it later, like we didn't know what the hell we were doing for the first two years. Yeah. It just happened that we had great revenue, but we actually sucked at really running restaurants, profitable restaurants at the time. Yeah. Tell me about the moment, so that, you know, when I, when, as I know your journey, there was, you, you, you know, we t- touched on a second, there's 10 locations now, you've got aspirations of, you know, 20, 25, 30 of them in the next you know, several years. Talk to me about the scale moment when it kind of, you know, you're now, you've now established you have a good product. Right. Okay. You've got people to show up. You've got people to care. You think your brand is, your brand's pretty cool. Food's good. Important things. And now you're saying, hey, I, w- I want to ha- open more locations. Probably had to go get, raise money, bring investors in. Like w- w- what happened at that stage? Because that was fairly new territory in some degree for you, wasn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely right. So we we did one thing right. We we hired a consultant to help us go from two to three. Because from from two restaurants, it's easy to divide yourself between two restaurants. You can be here and there. You know, in the morning you're here, at night you're there. And but when when you open the third one, the wheels sort of come off. Mm. You need to build systems and tools and procedures, and you need to become a real restaurant. We brought on a consultant to help us first and foremost build all of the systems and procedures and tools that we needed to be able to scale. So we were very smart when it came to that. And then we've hired a director of operations that had a ton of experience. That was the first time we hired somebody that got paid double what we got paid. So so the first time that you have to go and hire a director, right? So to me as an entrepreneur, never hired a director. I've always hired... You know, like when I worked at Sapien, uh, our team, there weren't necessarily people that I've hired, the people that we were there. And it was more of a family vibe. You had all these producers, project managers that helped you, you know, sort of manage all of these people. But now you have to go and hire somebody that you're going to pay close to $100,000 a year. And you're like, who do I hire? How do I hire? I think that was the, the first thing that was like very new to us. And then second, to raise money, you know, at that stage is friends and family. You're still going to friends and family. You're not bringing any institutional investors because you're still too small. Is that, I mean, I'm, I don't know about you, but friends and family is almost more scary to me than the institutional investors because it's like, I don't want to lose Uncle Joe's money kind of thing. You know what I mean? Or, it's a lot more responsibility, right? And and look, I, I take money seriously if it's from family or from investors. Yeah. That's just my philosophy. Yeah. But, you know, in the beginning, you you believe in this so much, right? And you're young and you're like, trust me, this is this is the best. And you have to have conviction in what you're gonna do. Yeah. You know, when things are bad, you know, and we hit like a rough patch at one point, it was very hard for me to raise money because it, I, I couldn't feel, I, I didn't have the confidence to raise money if that I knew I wasn't, I didn't have the business where I needed it to be. And only mm-hmm. when I kind of fix what I needed to fix, you go back and raise money. So there's a lot of responsibility involved, but especially with friends and family, because you don't want to let them down. You know, so mm-hmm. it's, it gets a little bit tougher, for sure. So you talked a second ago about not having, you know, the it was maybe some of the confidence you needed. And, I, you know, like, I know I keep going back to this kind of concept of fear that I, that I set up in the early part of the show. 
because I, I really want to touch on this idea of I want you to reflect on kind of these moments. Like, how did you get past that? You know, because it sounds like there's these very practical things you had to do to the changes you had to make in the business. But there was also, I think, this these changes you had to make in, almost in yourself as you've continued to evolve as a leader and as an entrepreneur, you know, right. to go out there. And I'm hoping other people can, you know, learn from those those lessons. Is there anything you can talk about kind of at, at, at that stage of how you maybe you kind of overcame some of your fears and, and challenges to get where you needed to be at that stage of the business? And I've never shied away from, from challenges, to be quite honest. You know, I, I For a very long time, I struggled with imposter syndrome. <laughs> you might know. Oh, you, man. No, absolutely. You know, I've, I've had that for so long until I had to realize, okay, you know, you know what you're doing, otherwise you wouldn't be here where you are today. Yeah. And just have a little bit more confidence in making mistakes, right? And then my co-founder Nidal always said something that always stuck to me, which was, you know, we can make mistakes, but as long as they're always new mistakes. That's great advice. You know, we're making new mistakes. And as long as you're making new mistakes and you're pushing yourself forward, I think you're okay to keep the ball going. But every stage of mine sort of just happened so naturally, right? It wasn't like okay, oh crap, you're going to be the CEO now, you know, oh crap, you're going to do this now. It's, they've happened, you know, naturally that I sort of just jumped right in. And then every time I, I jumped right in, I remember literally I would go online and I'd be like, what makes a good CEO? Like literally just type, what, what would make a good CEO? What would make a good CMO? I would go read job responsibilities of a CMO. This is like once upon a time, you know, like literally I would just- I've been there. Yeah. What's the job responsibility of a CMO? And I'll dissect it one by one. I'm like, okay, I can do that. I can do that. Like, Holy crap, I'm a CMO. <laughs> Those are the things that I did, man. And then and as long as you, whenever you fail, you're honest about it. I think everybody gets it. You know, just don't ever try to be the guy that knows or the gal that knows everything. You know, I, I think I'm a huge believer that when I don't know something, and one of my team members asked me, I say, look, honestly, I don't know. I've never done that before. Why don't we do this together? I never act like I know I know what, what needs to be done because I think it's just a, such an arrogant way of, of being a leader. So you, you walk right into the role and you say, look, here are all the things that I know how to do. Here are the things I need to work on it. And we're going to do this together. And it just works out. You talked a second ago about looking at job descriptions. And you, know, you, you started the business as a CMO. And you also said you looked at the job description of a CEO, what makes a good CEO. And I don't think when you started this thing, you know, you would have dreamt that you were going to be the CEO one day. If I remember correctly, you guys hired a, a, a pretty top tier uh, CEO at one point with a bunch of very relevant experience. And then, you know, you were put in a situation where you needed to take over the, the CEO role. Right. Well, let's hold the COVID thing for a second because that has a whole other level of crazy that I'm looking forward to getting into. I'd love to hear you talk a bit about coming into the CEO role and and what that. I mean, you didn't you didn't get like an MBA or something. I don't think there's like you know something out there that we're probably going to make you feel prepared for that. And and talk about getting thrown in the deep end. I mean, like what what was that like for you? And Love to hear about that experience. Absolutely. Yeah, look, it was never really my thing. First of all, I never thought Petra was going to become a 10-unit brand, and let alone we're here trying to grow nationally. How many employees is that now? We're close to 180 employees across the amazing, system. Amazing, man. It's, yeah, it's amazing. So, yeah, so the, I never really wanted to be CEO, you know, and, and things just sort of happened, to be quite honest. But, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten very good at business. I was always very, very good at business. I mean, part of it is intuition, part of it 
You know, I've lived in so many places. Every year in my high school was a different country. So I just have a very different, literally, I just have a very different perspective when it comes to business, you know, that very different lens. So I think, you know, I was always passionate about being a CEO, even though I wasn't one, right? Because, you know, I didn't know that about you. That's cool. No, it's just, it's just a thing. It was in my blood. I always, I like strategy. I like growth. I like all of those things. It's not like I was, oh no, I only like marketing. Uh, and, and, and I think the CMO role, the, the CMO role is such an important role in any brand that you're almost like a mini CEO at the end of the day. Yeah, and you got a huge, you got a big responsibility. And for the record, by the way, even though I didn't know that about you, I will say that you feel like a CEO to me. You, you, got, <laughs> you got, you got, you, you exude like, I got, I got this. And I think that's a great thing that, you know, people really want to see in their, in their leader. Yeah, no, it means a lot. Thank you. So, so yeah, so when the opportunity sort of, fell on my lap to be a CEO, I was a little intimidated by it. I had friends of mine that always told me, hey, you should be the CEO. And I always replied, I was like, look, it's not really what I want to do right now. And you, and you had to follow up a guy with a pretty big pedigree. <laughs> I used to quote Tupac. I used to like, give me the money, F the fame. <laughs> I just, I, I'm like, all I'm trying to do is build a, a successful business. I'm not trying to be famous. I don't want to be a CEO of the brand just because I want to be the guy who gets the credit. I don't care who gets the credit as long as we build an amazing company. That's what I, you know, simply what I was saying. And, and then the opportunity presented itself and I sort of had to sort of take over, to be quite honest. And I went, I dove right, right into it, you know. One of my mentors, his name is Jim Mises. He's, he's, he was a previous CEO of Blaze Pizza. I've called him and I said, look, I, I'm in this role right now. And I, I know what I need to do. Like I know the business A to Z, right? But the one thing that I have never done was manage a leadership team. And that was the one thing I was most scared of. I know what I need to do with my business from A to Z. I know what products I need to launch. I know how the restaurants need to run. I know it all from A to Z. But building an executive team was one thing I was like, oh, man, you know, like I've never really had to hire a CFO. I've never really had to deal with a chief operating officer. You know, how often do I need to meet with these guys? Like do I have to have one-on-ones every week? Like what's the KPI that I need from every person? So these were the things that were running through my mind. And they're very teachable, right? Anybody can teach you, look, here's what you need to do. But but that the emotional IQ, I think, is it's what you can't really teach. And I had that. I was like, I can handle all of that. And so I went right into it. I was a little uh, intimidated by it because it's not something that I really wanted to do, to be quite honest, because I'm a serial entrepreneur at heart. I'm constantly innovating and creating the next business. Mm -hmm. That's how my brain works. Like, that's the one thing I love, like starting, 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 not necessarily scaling. And then I've, as I've gotten very good at it, I just now absolutely love it. Yeah, you know, I think there's all different types of CEOs, though. You'll find, you know, there, there are CEOs that come up through the CFO path or the CEO path, and they may be very operationally centric or financially centric. And then you'll see, you know, sales and marketing centric CEOs. And very frequently, they tend to fall more on that kind of like visionary side of the spectrum. And, you know, it, it's nice to be able to come up with big ideas and then know that you have the, the, the power and the influence to really make your dreams reality and i can i can see how that could be um, really fulfilling right when i look at myself as ceo this is what i say my job as a ceo is to facilitate everyone else's job that's my mm -hmm. job 
I'm a team player. I, I go into this meeting. I'm like, okay, how can I help you? I go into this meeting. How can I help you? And I'm constantly just moving the ball forward. And it's a lot of fun because then I get to, you know, work with everyone and, you know, from marketing to ops to culinary. And man, I absolutely love it now. It's, it's not something that I wanted to do, but it sort of happened. I was telling my sister this the other day, and it's a quote from Mark Cuban. <laughs> I don't want to quote Mark Cuban, but but he said that, you know, passion sometimes, when you become very good at something, you become passionate about it. It's not necessarily that I was always passionate about being a CEO. I just happened to become a CEO and then realize I'm like, oh man, I, I really enjoy doing this. I'm really good at it. And now I'm extremely passionate about it. So we, we ha, you know, have to go back to this. So you, you're going into it. It sounds like one of the, you know, it kind of summarizes some of the advice is, you know, you had fears about the unknown and maybe not knowing what you didn't know, but you took steps to learn from mentors, do the research and fill any knowledge gaps you had. And you just, and you just took it head on. Right. And then COVID hit, which no one on earth could have prepared for. Right. Uh, <laughs> We, you know, no one alive anyway, because no one's no one's gone through a global pandemic, you know, in, in you know, close to 100 years. You're in a business that was, you know, in many cases, uh, during, it's shut down. They literally wouldn't let people into your physical locations. How did you guys deal with that? And if you don't mind me asking, how did the business do? I mean, it, you know, did, were you guys able to navigate that successfully? What what did your 2020 look like? We've had some crazier shit stories about this over the last year. I know yours is a good one. So, so I, at this moment, I couldn't go to Google and say pandemic 101. <laughs> How to deal with a pandemic? Zero results, right? <laughs> there was no job responsibilities for a pandemic, uh, a pandemic uh, director. <laughs> Honestly, man, without sounding cheesy, I just did what I thought was right. And I led, I led from a source of strength instead of source of fear. I literally told myself, I'm like, look, if we're going to go down, I'm going to go down swinging. You know, if I'm going to go down, I'm just going to do what is right by my team. And I'm just going to make decisions that are based on making sure that everybody's protected and everybody's safe. And I'll deal with the money later. I'll deal with the consequences later. You know, I spoke to some of some friends or have other restaurants here locally, you know, just for advice. Hey, what do we do? And it was like, oh, you got to, you know, furlough as many people as you can and preserve your cash and ride this out. And that just didn't sit right with me, to be quite honest. You know, I literally sat here. I opened up my computer. This is the first time I do a Zoom call with my, like, with all of my team. You know, we've never done a Zoom call. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's just do this whole Zoom thing. So I told everybody, I'm like, look, we've never been through this. It's scary. But here's what I'm going to tell you. And this is a race. We're going through the desert, right? We've, we've been at this race for, for 10 years now, right? We're going through the desert. We have X amount of water. We're going to share it between each other. And we're just gonna we're just gonna ride it out. You know, if it means some of you guys are gonna get a little bit less hours, so be it. But but I'm not furloughing anyone. I'm not gonna furlough not even one team member. We, we're just gonna make sure we take care of each other. I'm like, if anybody gets sick, and there was no PPP at this time. Nobody had what what a PPP was. We didn't know anything. So I told them, I'm like, guys, if somebody gets sick, stay home. I'm not gonna promise you that I'm gonna be able to pay you for two weeks. You know, but here's what I'm gonna promise you. I will deliver food for you and your kids every day for 14 days. You guys are not going to go hungry. You deal with your landlord later, but we, we're a restaurant group. You're not going to go hungry. That's huge, man. That's really wonderful. For, for everyone. And, and then I told my team, I'm like, if we have to send it via DoorDash, it is what it is, right? I said, mm -hmm. for anybody that's a parent, if you have kids at home uh, and they're not in school, you can take, not only you can take free food for yourself, but now you can take food for your family every day. I don't care if you have 15 kids, you know, God bless you. Take food for your kids every day because you don't have to worry about feeding your kids at home. 
We did that for five months, by the way. Every day, any team member at Pincho was able to take food for their family, for their kids. It was like, look, we're just going to take care of each other. We'll, I'll deal with the landlords. That's actually one of the nice, nicest things I've heard anyone do during, during uh, COVID, honestly. Right. And then I said, I, I set up an emergency fund with my own money. I'm like, look, I'm going to set up an emergency fund. If anything happens to anyone, just hit me up, call me. Your car gets towed. You can't pay your bills. You can't pay your electricity, whatever. Just call me. We'll figure this out. And then lastly, I said, here's what we're going to do for the community. You know, we always give back to first responders. It's sort of part of who we are. It's always, you know, they always got under account. We said, we're going to give a 50% off for first responders and hospital workers. Anybody working in the hospital, if you're the doctor, if you're part of the cleaning crew, whatever, if you work at Baptist, Palmetto, whatever, you can come in every day, 50% off. And then I went to Instagram and then we started acting like a source of strength, like a source, like a community. We started like broadcasting, like, hey, Pete, we call them Pincho updates, Pincho updates, you know. Uh, here's what we're doing for our team. Pinch updates. Here's what we're doing for the community. And then when we said 50% off for hospital workers and first responders, it went viral. And it went viral locally. And believe it or not, because of all of the press we've gotten for that act of kindness, our sales did not tank like everybody else. I have to put up uh, this, uh, this quote. Our number one fan, uh, Masayoshi, always tunes in for a ship every week. He's always very engaged in chat. And he, he's got a, a what leadership auto. I love everything you just said. All, all block letters. Uh, Moss and I do get to work together. And I, I, he's given me some very nice compliments about leadership over the, over the last year. And I think you may have just bumped me from my cool kid spot. <laughs> and and now, now I didn't know I had competition with Moss, but now, now apparently I do autos. So, yeah, that, that's, that's huge, man. I, I, I can't say enough um, good things about uh, what you just said. And I love not because it was a marketing ploy or something. I love that you became the center of your community and you did the right thing. And by doing the right thing, you know, the, the business followed. So that's the positive side. Right. What was the craziest O-ship moment in terms of the business kind of not going as, as predicted, maybe due to COVID and so on that, that you couldn't have predicted? I mean... There's a couple. I'm trying to pick which ones, uh, which ones are are the best ones. But the first one, which is ends up being the fact that we were doing okay, you know, because we weren't doing great. We were doing okay. Our, our sales took a 25% dip for for a couple of weeks, but we were the only restaurant that was doing okay. So when it came to our meat supplier, our chicken supplier, you know, everybody, you know, we we get a, a beef fresh from New Jersey. They couldn't service us. So we're here saying, okay, wait, we have a restaurant that's doing okay, but we can't get beef in the building. We can't get chicken in the building. If you have a restaurant. Dude, it was like, I was like, wait, what? I, I'm here thinking like, okay, we're amazing. And then all of a sudden we have to switch our entire distribution channel mid-pandemic. We had to start, like we were receiving all of the merchandise into one restaurant and then our team had to become distributors. So we had to drive around and deliver product to our restaurants. It was crazy. And I'm here thinking like, you know, I think, I think it's like, okay, we're doing amazing. We're going to do awesome. But then we couldn't service our guests. Oh, no. Did they give you any warning or did you just get like cut off one day and have to deal with it afterwards? Just cut off. It's not warning. It's because, you know, they had, they had, te- they had their own team members that weren't going to work. Jersey at the time wasn't a great place to be in either, you know, so all of these crazy things. And we're like scrambling to find food. 
all of a sudden gloves, you know, people that gloves, the case was 20 bucks and all of a sudden they're $130. And you're yeah. like, what do you mean? And, it, and we think about that, like just the stuff that people making food with all of a sudden becomes like the most right. valuable commodity on and earth. Then, and then take out packaging. We're like, oh, sorry, uh, guys, we don't have burger boxes for you anymore. So like, how am I going to sell burgers? It's like, sorry, there's a shortage of takeout packaging because everybody is going to go. So there was all these little things. Every other week, there was an oh shit moment. <laughs> but I, I think the, the craziest one, which is actually a good oh shit moment, because of my background in, in technology, we were so lucky that for nine months prior to COVID, we built our entire technology stack. We were that crazy guy that believes that zombies are going to come and has all that food in the basement. We were that in terms of you were, you were full prepper, Otto. We were we were <laughs> we were so ready. I had all of the integration set up. We were super early adopters of third-party delivery like Uber Eats, Postmates, DoorDash. Everything was amazing. We had just built our mobile app, and I was actually part of the team who designed the UX for the mobile app because of my background. So we were so well set up that the city had said they were going to close the dining rooms, right? And and I said, let's just close the dining rooms before anybody tells us to. That's it. Let's just go to a takeout window mode and let's just push everyone towards our digital. Everyone towards our digital channel. You know, not the third-party deliveries. Let's push everybody towards the Pintra mobile app. And man, it was amazing. It was the best thing ever. So like our digital sales, you know, actually we were 25% of our sales were delivery. When this hit, our delivery only went to 35. All the other sales went to our own channels, which was amazing. All, we have all of the data and all of that. But then the oh ship moment was on 420. So imagine, so what, pandemic was like March 16th, I think it was. On 420, our sales were okay, but I needed a boost and I knew digital was the name of the game. So I went to my team and I'm like, look, it's 420, everybody's in the funk. We need to drive our digital sales. I'm like, you know what? Four dollars and twenty cents burgers, any burger for four twenty across the board, as long as you buy it via our app. So that way, we we show some love to South Florida, and also we drive adoption of our mobile app, right, and our loyalty. And because of the way that we design our mobile app and our sign up, if you place an order with us online, you automatically become a loyalty member. Like you can't check out as a guest. So. I'm like, okay, amazing. You know, we'll we'll get some signups. We'll start driving that. What I didn't realize was how powerful Pincho brand was locally. Yeah. And brother, when I tell you, we ran out of food by 7 p.m. across all restaurants. Our team completely hated me. Hated, <laughs> hated me. We've signed up thousands of people to our loyalty on that day. I was at Publix at 6.30 buying American cheese and buying lettuce because I was trying to, like the Sunrise location, which is the one close to you, I was trying to like deliver food there and everybody's like blowing up my phone. It was just insane. I love that, by the way. I love that. People don't get this. When you're the CEO, you're doing wacky stuff, like going to Publix to buy buy any meat you can get hold just so the food doesn't come out. People don't get this. Joke like as your CEO, I've I, you know, assembled more desks than anyone I've ever met. I've cleaned the microwave more times than I've ever met. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was nuts. And because we've learned this the hard way, there's this thing on online ordering called uh, order throttling. In which if a lot of orders go every 15 minutes, you can throttle the orders to go to the next 15 minutes, to the next 30 minutes. So if you get 100 orders right now, you don't have to make them all at once. You can space them out within you know two hours. 
and we had never turned that on. So when it was 12 o'clock, we literally got over a thousand orders across the system in one hour. And then people are like, what the hell's going on? And then everybody's calling me like, Otto, what did you do? I was like, ah. That's incredible. Hearing all this, I have to ask, is your life been very different from what you'd imagined it would have been if you can go back in time? Or is this kind of fulfilling everything exactly as you'd planned it? Well, I think one of the scariest things for me was to make the move from corporate world to full-on entrepreneur, right? So I went from making some decent money, you know, I had just gotten married to my wife and we had like a really nice apartment in Brickell. So all of a sudden, hey, I know we just got married. It's been six months. I'm going to move back in with my parents and I'll take you with me and I'm going to go work at Pintro. And oh, my salary the first year is going to be 15000 And then the second year is going to be 35000 And then we're just going to roll with it. So I think that was the craziest thing. So that is crazy. First three years, I basically didn't have a salary, uh, and I and I lived. With, I moved back in with my parents. You know, imagine twenty eight year old guy and moved back in with my parents. Just got married to my wife. Yeah. And God bless her. You know, she's the best. Shout out to the parents out there. A lot of people don't know this. When you know, when when uh, I you know the, the year I started Commune Collective, I had quit a job I really hated. I just happened to be. I had to move in with my in laws. Nice. Because I had moved back from New York and I'd sold my house to move up to New York for this crazy job I had. And I honestly think if I wasn't living with my in-laws, right. uh, just because I, we just hadn't got a place, but I, because we had no expenses, that gave me the confidence to go, you know, say maybe we should do this crazy company thing. So that, no, you know, it's sl slow cap for all the parents out there who help, help their entrepreneurial you know, sons and daughters. My parents, like Pincher wouldn't, ex well, Pincher wouldn't exist if it wasn't for my co-founders and his wife, you know, Nadal and Crystal did an incredible job in the first two years, just hustling, making it happen. But then also Pincher would not exist if it wasn't for the fact that I would be able to also leave and go help them, you know, continue building this thing because my parents are just amazing, man. They're like, okay, cool. You know, we'll deal with you. We'll deal with you for another three years and pay your bills. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, when I look at my life, you know, sometimes I look back and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm a pretty ambitious dude. So I probably would have kept moving on up within Sapient, gone to, to a, you know, some sort of VP role or probably would have left for another tech company, you know, another startup, some sort of product role, some sort of creative direction role. Or, or boss around from a ad agency to ad agency, which is probably what everybody wants to do if you're in the ad world, right? And probably would have made really good money. But honestly, man, I would if I were to go back, I would take this route a thousand times versus staying in, in, in the creative world. I mean, man, it's just, it's the ups and downs that makes it fun. It's all the craziness and, and, and the stress levels. You know, one day you're amazing. One day you're, you're like, oh, I wish I had a paycheck right now, you know? So... <laughs> Given that these journeys are, can be unpredictable, when someone goes out there and they, uh, you know, someone wanted to pursue a career similar to yours, what advice would you give them? Well, you know, I think first and foremost is I think you need to start slow, right? So one thing that I did was I didn't just quit Sapien day one. I quit Sapien two years into Pincho and when we already had a business that did about two million bucks in revenue. So it's a very different story. So I think if you if you're somebody that works in the creative world or anywhere, you know, in the corporate world, dude, start as your side hustle. Make sure that you're getting some sort of traction. You know, just don't quit and say, "Look, I have an idea for this new product that's gonna innovate the, a household," and then just go all in. No, you know, not to quote Gary Vee, which he's 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 too too quoted, but you know, the one thing is, there's always time.
for you to build something. You know, it's the nights and weekends, right? It's the nights and weekends. It's, it's called discipline, man. It's discipline of saying, I'm going to go home after work. I'm going to hang out with my family. If I have, you know, let's say if you're married, if you're not, you're going to spend time with your family and your kids. And then you're going to say, all right, great. I got to go do this. You know, and if you're really passionate about it, as you know, uh, Freddie, anybody that's part of our world, when we worked, you know, till two in the morning, three in the morning in an ad agency, it's not like this crazy, oh my God, I hate it here. You love it. So you're there. I mean, it, it sucks, but you're there till two, three in the morning and it goes by, you know, yeah. do you want to be there till two, three in the morning? You don't, but you, you just enjoy the work. So yeah. if, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, I think that's the number one advice is, is get some sort of validity first of what your idea is, you know, and then have a strong support system, either parents or some sort of savings and, and do it little by little, little by little. You don't have to quit and just do it all at once, you know, and look, Pincho wasn't my first business that was successful. I feel like five times before Pincho. Yeah. But what I'm telling you is the more rewarding feeling of being an entrepreneur is being your own boss and being able to create something for me at least that many people will will love that as as a marketer like just seeing how many people love peach was like the best feeling in the world it really is like i know it sounds cheesy but it's like everybody knows peach and they love it amazing that's awesome yeah so, so I'm, I'm gonna ask one final question before it's been a really fun episode by the way i've, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting with it as i always do and i you know i was thinking about how the episode started and me talking about you know kind of knowing you from sapien it's just you were you were you know, a cool creative guy you know in the in the creative studio not really understanding you know, this incredible journey that you were going to go on do you remember what your first memory of me was i'm trying to think about when we first first met her and i've always been a bit of a nut i had great yeah. hair back then one thing i remember but other than that i'd love to know what my first impression my, what impression i left on you way back way back when I, I, I actually do vaguely, but I do. This was when we were at uh, the Sapien office in uh, the, the one that was really far. What was the name? The, the like Cutler Ridge or whatever. Oh, yeah, the Cutler Bay one like by Eureka, right? It's the end of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the old DK offices. And, and we had just, uh, Sapien had just acquired your company. And, and you guys were coming to the office for the first time. And I'm like, oh, look at all these wannabe awesome Flash developers. You know, we had a Flash team. We're like, oh, here we go. And it was Alex Toledo and his cool tattoo and, you know, Caesar and all guys. <laughs> and then I went outside, you know, and once upon a time, I used to smoke cigarettes and I don't anymore. But I went outside to for, for a quick cigarette break. And then you were there, you know, and I think you were wearing like a fedora or something. I don't know. Maybe you were wearing like a hat. Yeah, like one of these, my, my classic. I'm always, always wearing my, my flat cap. Yeah. There you go. That was, that was there. Yeah, I'll put you back into the moment. It all came back. It all came back. And I'm there. I'm listening to you guys talk to each other. And I'm just, you know, in the corner, just listening in. And I'm listening to you. And I'm thinking to myself, and don't be offended by this. because I love you dearly. You're a dear friend of mine. But I'm like. I'm like, where is he? Where is he from? I'm like that accent. It's like he's like, is he American trying to sound British? Like, is this guy really story just my life, man. story of my life? My you know what I mean? I was like, wait, is he like? Did he? Is he one of those guys that went to? Am, school? I, am I Madonna? Am I going full Madonna on you and basically like you <laughs> doing the very London accent? There you go. Is, is he one of those guys that go to Spain and all of a sudden says Ibiza? Or like, you know, <laughs> did, he, did he go to like London for one summer and now all of a sudden he's like, oh, water? And I was, that's what I remember. 
That's amazing. But then, but then I, I introduced myself to you guys, you know, and then I got to meet you guys. I'm like, holy crap, these guys are amazing. They're very cool. And then we had looked up to you guys ever since. And uh, it feels mutual, man. This is yeah, too funny. I'm turning red from laboratory. Yeah, no, I didn't go full Madonna on you, I promise. No, that was amazing. That's a great, uh, very entertaining way to end this week's episode. Uh, Otto, thanks so much for coming on. It was such a fun story. I know whether people are watching the show live now or they're catching up with us after on YouTube, Periscope, Facebook, LinkedIn, or any of the other places that we're we've been broadcasting and we show our show, I know they're going to enjoy this one. For those of you that are watching, please support the show. The best thing you can do to support us and get us to produce more content like this is, you know, give us a like, give us a share, comment, tell your friends. It's not something we do for any other reason than just trying to share great, inspiring leaders with everyone out there that maybe needs a lift or needs a little bit of a uh, little bit of inspiration in their day. So hope to see you next week. Thank you for watching. Otto, thanks again for being on the show and see you next week on OSHIP. The O-Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sales for the O-Ship Show.